1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23, here's what God's word says. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food, this has been offered in sacrifice, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we know that your word points us first and foremost and most ultimately to you, and in you there is life to be found. And so, Father, would you nourish us this morning? Would you feed us? Would you give us what we need today as we gather? Lord, we recognize in your providence you have had this to be the passage for us this morning, and so we ask that you would give us humble hearts and open hands and open ears God, we ask that you be gracious to us and that you would teach us and lead us through your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year 1610 was a very important year in human history. If you know your history really well, you'll know that in 1610, Galileo, the astronomer, made a fantastic discovery using his telescope. He liked to study the stars and look at things. And on one day in 1610, he made a few new discoveries that contributed to this idea that really just fully convinced him in his mind that the center of our solar system, in fact, is not the planet Earth. It's actually the sun. And he tried to share these findings with his peers, and he was quickly rejected for this because his findings were in disagreement with popular belief. The popular belief was that the earth was the center of the solar system. Everything revolved around the earth and revolved around us. In fact, it was the prevailing thought that the Bible was the very source that taught that as they tried to read literally every single text of the Bible. But Galileo discovered, hey, based off what I'm seeing here, off of the created order, it, it seems to be that's not true. It seems to be actually the sun is the center and everything is revolving around it. Now that got him in a lot of trouble. He ended up spending the rest of his life on house arrest, but we know from where we stand today, we're very grateful for the man's bravery to be able to say, despite what everybody else thought, actually we aren't at the center. 
I'm very grateful for that today. But there's an interesting, just anthropological observation we could make about human beings at this time to say, we are so self-centered. How could it not be us at the center of all things? We are just quite naturally self-centered and self-prioritizing. It's just who we are and what we're like. We come out of the womb self-centered. We all know this. From the moment we're born, we are about meeting our own needs. No one has to teach us this as we grow up. We see this in little children quite obviously and plainly. No one has to teach them the word mine. It's just ingrained. And the more life that we live, the more practice we get learning how to be selfish. Right? Most of our lives, we're just growing up and just getting better and better and better at being self-centered and prioritizing ourselves. We build our whole lives, our whole kingdoms around us, our comfort, our success, our happiness. The guiding ethic of our lives is me, myself, and I. But when you come to know Jesus, all of that gets confronted and all of that changes. There's a radical change when someone comes to know Jesus, namely, what's now recognized of being the center. What once was me at the center, now when you come to know Jesus, you recognize, oh, I've viewed this whole system wrong the whole time. I've never been at the center. Actually, it's been Christ and Christ alone that's been at the center the whole time. It's not as if anything actually changed in the universe. You just came to recognize the truth when you came to know Jesus. And it changes everything about our lives. It changes all of the decisions that we make. It changes the, the words that we speak. It changes how we use our time. It changes the way in which we engage in relationships with people. It changes our freedoms. What we, what we maybe once felt free to do before and maybe now we don't anymore. Maybe things that we couldn't do before and now we feel free to be able to do now that Christ is at the center. But when you become a follower of Jesus, you are now having two defining priorities in your life and neither of them are you. It is the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. Because Jesus is at the center of your life. We must glorify God and prioritize our neighbor in all things. Now the Corinthians didn't really like that. They were a very me first culture, a very me first people, a culture we can relate with, right? That's what led them to, as we've been studying the last couple of chapters, that's what led them to insist we have the rights and the freedoms to go where we want and eat where we want. We can go to the temples to these false gods and eat food there because we have the freedom to do so. We have, those are our rights. Don't come infringing upon our rights. And what has Paul been doing throughout this whole time? He started with, first of all, saying, that's not loving to your neighbor who may deeply be struggling with a lot of those things or a past of worshiping false gods, but two, it's actually idolatry. It doesn't worship God. He has one last thing to say about all of this before he moves on altogether. But we just saw him to say, have nothing to do with these things. In the midst of the last piece of instruction he's going to give, he's going to structure it all around our new calling as Christians. 
Our new calling is this, the glory of God and the priority of neighbor. Glory of God and the priority of neighbor. The Corinthians were really struggling. I mean, I, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to live in a society like that that was filled with idol worship everywhere. They're literally trying to figure out how do we go about our daily, everyday tasks in a culture that is just flooded with idols. They're everywhere. How do we, how do, we do this? Do we just have to isolate ourselves from all of society and, and live like isolated lives all to ourselves? Well, no. Here's where Paul begins in this section to essentially say this, live your life and enjoy your freedoms. Look where he goes in verse verse 25. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now he's just been talking about how they can't go to the temples and eat the food sacrificed to idols. So we would expect him to place a whole, like a wholesale ban on all food that may have had anything to do with idols. That's what we would expect him to say, but it's not what he says. In fact, it it maybe kind of jars us to say, eat eat any of the meat in the meat market. Just just go eat it. You're free to to eat it. What? What? What's the difference here? He's essentially saying, hey, go about your everyday life. Live in your city. Engage. Go to the marketplace and buy the food and eat it. Go to the store. Talk with Gary the butcher. Buy the meat that he's selling. Go support him. Go get food for for yourself, for your friends, for your family. Go to your neighbor's house. Share a meal. You don't need to isolate yourself in some ivory tower now that you're a Christian. And he says, eat it without raising any question, which literally means this idea of don't investigate it. Don't go looking and, and asking all of these questions to try to figure out what is the origin of this food. And if at any point along the line, did it come in contact with idols? He says, don't, don't even worry about that. Don't even worry about that because the ultimate origin of all food is God himself. That's why he quotes here in in verse uh, 26 from Psalm chapter 24. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's saying the ultimate origin of any food you're ever going to eat is the Lord himself. So don't unnecessarily burden yourself with going to investigate the tracking history, the shipping history, or whatever it may be of this food. In fact, even in the book of Romans, we see uh, declared that all food is clean. Nothing in and of itself is unclean. So he's saying you have this freedom to eat this food and enjoy it. You're not called now that you're Christians to be meat inspectors. And here's what I think Paul is saying. He's saying that there is a difference between blatantly pursuing engagement with idols, which is going to the temples and eating the meat there. There's a difference between blatantly pursuing engagement with idols and going about the basic everyday human activity without the need to investigate every little thing. If you now have the burden to investigate every little tiny thing to figure out if at any point did this have anything to do with idols, a false religion, a false belief, a sin somewhere, you will do nothing in your life. You'll sit in a room that you will have to make with materials that you found to be pure and no one else has ever come in contact. Like, it's just absurd. Paul's saying... There's a difference between pursuing engagement with idols and just going about the everyday human activity of buying food and eating it. 
He, does, he says, you don't need to be unnecessarily burdening your consciences by trying to do all this investigative work. He kind of, I'm going to jump ahead a little quick, uh, real briefly, because in, in 29 and 30, he kind of explains this. He kind of goes a little bit out of order here, but, but, but let me read this. In, in verse 29, he says, for, for why should my liberty, why should my freedoms be judged or determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake of this food with thankfulness, why am I being denounced, which also means slandered, spoken evil of, because of that for which I give thanks? He's saying there, there are things that are morally neutral in our world that are not expressly forbidden by Scripture or not expressly commanded by Scripture, things that are just morally neutral. In regards to those things, I'm free. Why would my stance on morally neutral things and how you think about them judge me? Why should your opinion on morally neutral things judge and condemn my opinion on morally neutral things? If I partake of these morally neutral things with thankfulness, why am I being slandered by you? How does that make any sense? You're free to eat and enjoy. That's what he's saying. But in the midst of that, he calls us to seek the good of our neighbor. He doesn't just say, hey, you're free in Christ. So therefore, just you're free to do whatever pleases you. He's not saying that. He's not saying you are free to just do anything that, that benefits you. No, no, no. That's not what he says. Look at verse 23 and 24. He's quoting them where they like to have this phrase, the Corinthians, that say, all things are lawful. We can do whatever. We're free in Christ. All things are lawful. But what does Paul say? He says, well, but not all things are helpful. You say all things are lawful, but not all things actually build up your neighbor. So there's times when maybe those freedoms clash with this call we have to prioritize the good of our neighbor. Paul is primarily concerned here with the unbelieving neighbor. He's, he's had things to say earlier. Remember when he talked about the very first reason he gave for not going to the temples? He talked about the, the faith of your brother or sister. He was talking about a believer at that point. Here, Paul's primary concern is how your actions affect and impact the unbeliever, the non-Christian. And so he says, there will be times when maybe your freedoms could possibly get in the way of the good of your unbelieving neighbor. And then he gives a scenario with this same food. The same food that you're free to eat and go buy for the marketplace, he, envis he envisions a dinner scenario, Right? Look what he says in verse 28, if, if, or, or 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, meaning you, and, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If an unbeliever invites you to their home to eat dinner with them, eat the dinner. Don't object and stand there and say, well, can you tell me um, the precise time that this... Uh, food entered the port of Corinth and wh where it's been and who's touched it since then and, and what's been the deal. He says, if an unbeliever invites you to their home to eat their food, go eat their food. Which, there's also a, a really simple assumption that's caught up in all of that. It's that the Christians in Corinth would have a significant enough relationship with unbelievers 
that they would maybe invite them to their home for dinner. I think there's something that we have to sit with in just that reality. That Paul assumes the Christians have enough of a relationship with non-Christians that they'll invite them over for dinner. I wonder, do you this morning have significant enough relationships where you may be invited to share a meal? This is precisely part of what he's been calling them to do. Don't isolate yourselves. Engage. Engage in culture. Engage with your community. Engage with friends. Have relationships with people. Be invited over to their homes for dinner. Now, we have a different hospitable culture. Inviting people over for dinner is a little bit more rare in in our time, but maybe out to dinner. Whatever it may be, there's a significant enough relationship that you might be invited to hang out, to spend time together. Some of us maybe need to be a little bit more intentional about building relationships so that's a reality in our lives. So he says, if you go to dinner, eat the food, except under this one condition. In verse 28, if someone says to you at the dinner, this food has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. Then don't eat it. Why? Well, he tells us exactly why. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, not your conscience, but his. Why? How is that for the sake of the unbeliever? So you're at a dinner, food's coming out, another unbeliever sitting at the table next to you. We'll call him uh, Ryan or, yeah, we'll we'll call him Ryan. Ryan says to you, uh, Hey man, just so you know, this food was, uh, was just offered uh, into the temple uh, earlier this morning. Good talking to you. Now we don't know exactly why somebody might announce that together, but now you're in this position of you have just been told this food has been offered in sacrifice. It has been recognized, this meal has now been recognized to be in the honor of a false god. In that moment, Paul says, don't eat it. Not because you might get contaminated by it, but for the sake of the unbeliever. How could that be for the sake of the unbeliever? It's for the sake of the unbeliever because in that moment, Paul's saying, don't give the slightest hint that Christians sanction idolatry. We don't want to give the unbeliever the slightest hint that we are cool with idolatry. No big deal? Yeah, we'll eat this, we'll eat this meal in honor of your God. No. In that moment, don't eat it for their sake, that they may see that you follow a God that calls them away from all other false gods. Joining your neighbor in sin to show that Christians are cool and relevant is not profitable for them. That is not for the good of your neighbor. There is a cultural temptation to just assimilate, to just you know, not, let, me, let me not force my opinion on them. Let me just love them by not offending them and not saying anything. And Paul's saying here, it's not loving for you to join them in their worship of idols. Because if and when you do that, you, 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 you basically say, the Lord Jesus that you follow, he's not the one true God. He's just one of many. You can follow whichever one you'd like. Now, you might wonder, how, how in the world would I find myself in a scenario like this? We're not really doing food sacrifice to idols. But it could be this. 
any kind of just normal, everyday human activity that you engage in, let's say like a dinner, or maybe you go to a concert with friends, or maybe you go to um, a run or a workout with friends together, you are entirely free to do that. You are free to enjoy that. That's part of being a human being and engaging in your society and in your culture. By all means, partake of those things and enjoy. But if you find yourself in that moment and an unbeliever may say something to you along the lines of, let's say some, a friend invited you over for a dinner party at their house and they say, welcome everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. I just wanted to recognize the whole reason why we're gathering for this uh, dinner party at my house is that we may uh, raise supports and funds and celebrate abortion rights in the United States. All of a sudden, your presence at a dinner, which is entirely morally neutral, has now got caught up in a movement of something that's against the Word of God. It's now become in celebration of killing someone made in the image of God. And now you're caught up in that. Now you have a decision. Do I say anything? Do I just kind of not offend anybody, fly under the radar, just participate? Or do I no longer partake of this. Our maybe instinct would be, well, I just won't say anything. I don't want to offend anybody. I, I'm not for that, but you know, I'm, just, I'm just part of the party. By being there at that moment, you are now a part of it. You are now saying to everyone there with you, I'm a Christian and yeah, absolutely, I'm with you on this. The stakes just got raised a lot higher in a situation like that. Or if you went to, to a concert with some friends and some guy came out on the stage about to play his, his guitar and he said, today all of the, the, the money and the tickets that you spent and everything you spent on concessions is going to supporting the cause of racism in the United States. I know it sounds absurd, right? I'm using an absurd example on purpose. In that moment, I would hope that you would look around at all of your friends and be like, let's leave. This is, this is awful. This is weird. We don't want to be here. Right? Because being there now my presence affirms idolatry. It affirms sin. And it says, as a follower of Jesus, it's cool with me and it's cool with him. In that moment, something that I was free to do beforehand, now it's no longer loving to my neighbor to do so. Are you tracking with that? Maybe one more simple example. I love to make jokes. I love to laugh at jokes. I love just being silly, making people laugh. And there are times when I will be in conversations with friends of mine that are not Christians and we'll be laughing and we'll be joking and all of the sudden, it will turn from harmless joking to coarse joking, to joking about really graphic things, sexual things, inappropriate things, slanderous things, all of a sudden, take a sharp turn. In that moment, I am called to no longer participate in that laughter and in that joking. It might be socially weird, but in that moment, if I just continue to participate in something morally neutral like laughing and telling jokes and making each other laugh, I am now condoning that as a follower of Jesus. And Paul's saying in, in those situations, don't, don't participate. Even though you were quote unquote free to do that activity, no longer in this moment should you do that. It's really a model that Jesus modeled so beautifully. Jesus had this wonderful ability to have deep friendship, true friendship with people, while also 
disagreeing with some of the things that they do. He could have full friendship and love and care for someone and yet not stand in full support of everything that they're about and everything they're involved in. I feel like culturally we have lost that ability. It is either you love someone and you fully celebrate and accept everything about who they are and what they've done or you hate them and reject everything about them. That's not how Jesus lived. Jesus spent a significant amount of time with tax collectors and sinners, but he was a king who called people to repentance, which means Jesus didn't go celebrate with tax collectors and sinners and say, you're perfect just the way you are. I love that you, you steal from people. What a lifestyle, man. More power to you. Yep, you, you sell your body for, for money. Out, yep, no problem. You do you. No, he loved them deeply, cared for them deeply, spent time with them, celebrated with them, ate meals with them, and yet he also was full of truth and called them to repentance. We need a Savior like that, and he's called us to be like that. So it may be a freedom to do that thing, but now your engagement in it is an endorsement of sin, and that's not loving your neighbor. It's not loving our neighbors because in that moment we tell them the one true God is not really the one true God. And it affirms their idolatry and doesn't lead them away from the false gods to Jesus. And if we are going to truly seek the good of our neighbor, we want to help them turn from false gods to the one true God. Amen? So this is our calling as Christians. Priority of neighbor, but then also the glory of God. In everything that we do, this is where it goes in verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God is at the center of all things. Because he is at the center, he's the most important. That's what goes in the middle. The most important thing goes in the middle because it's connected to all the other things. Jesus is at the center of all things. The Bible attests to this very clearly for us. Romans chapter 11 says this. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Jesus is at the center of all things. All things exist for him. All things exist through him. He holds all things together. Or Hebrews chapter 2 says this. Describes Jesus as for whom and by whom all things exist. Jesus is at the center of all things, of the universe, of time, and of our lives. Because of that, we aim to glorify Him in all things, meaning we love Him, we trust Him, we thank Him, we obey Him. He is most important. So Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So when you use your freedoms, glorify God. Praise him. Thank him for those freedoms. Enjoy them. Allow those freedoms to lift your eyes to see that he is your provider. If you eat and partake, do it to the glory of God. If you abstain and withhold and at times limit your freedoms, do that for the glory of God. Obey him. Proclaim him. 
So Paul's saying, essentially, live your life, Corinthians and Christians, with these two priorities, the glory of God and the love of neighbor, priority of neighbor. And when my freedoms collide with those two priorities, my freedoms get laid aside because these are what I'm called to. But the problem is, is our sinful bend is not glory of God and priority of neighbor. Our sinful bend is glory of self and priority of, you guessed it, self. That's what we are about. That's our instinct. That's what we like to do. We would rather insist on our freedoms. We would rather insist on our rights. And we tend to think, well, if my rights and my freedoms bother somebody else or hinder them, that's their fault. Too bad. This is my freedom, my right. What do I care if somebody else gets in the way of that and bothered by that? Get them out of the way. It's I who matter. That's their problem. We are about our comfort. Everything is about, well, my pursuit of happiness. If you get in the way of my pursuit of happiness, I have the right to move you out of the way. We don't have a self-sacrificing love and priority of neighbor. And if we didn't believe that, when we all went through COVID, we realized, oh, that's a reality. We all experienced it when we went to the grocery store or we went to Target or we went to Walmart and we tried to buy some toilet paper. <laughs> For whatever reason, toilet paper was a thing you can't get during a pandemic. Toilet paper and paper towels, right? What do we see? We saw this really strange reality in human beings. People are taking the toilet paper. I got to go get my toilet paper before other people go and get their toilet paper. And it became this really dumb thing. Or for some reason, we needed to hoard paper products. So much so that people would start hoarding them more than they need and then start selling them at a markup. This just became normal behavior. We all expected it. We all realized it was a thing. And if you were at the store and you happened to see a roll of toilet paper, even though you didn't need it, you thought, well, I may as well get it in case I run out. Crisis reveals what we value. And that crisis revealed that we are all very selfish. We care way more about our needs. We care way more about our potential future needs that might not even be realistic than we do about others' actual needs in the moment. We're very selfish. I wonder if you've ever asked, how is my life bringing the good of my unbelieving neighbor? The way I'm living my life, how am I intentionally seeking the good of my non-Christian neighbor? Is there any intentionality there at all? Or is it just, well, maybe they'll see how I live and come ask me a question someday. I hope that happens. That would be great. We should live our lives as an example. But are you intentionally seeking the good of your unbelieving neighbor? You see, our tendency is usually, if we try to do one of these, the glory of God or priority of neighbor, is to do one or the other and not really both. So there's some of us here this morning that tend to only care about the glory of God, but not really about the good of our neighbor. So you, if you're this type of person, you, you care a lot about being right, but you're not very loving 
You take a stance on pretty much everything. You have really high standards. You're full of conviction, but you also tend to shut people down when they don't live up to those right standards. You demand that people change, but you don't have a lot of grace for people to make mistakes in the process. And this type of person becomes dogmatic. They become rigid. They become really prideful, legalistic, and ultimately isolated because no one else seems to live up to the right standards that you have. So may as well isolate. There's some of us here that maybe don't tend towards that way. We tend towards the other way. We, we tend to only care about the good of our neighbor and not so much about the glory of God. And so where that person took a stance on everything, you took a stance on nothing. Because you don't really care about being right. You care about being loving. You care about people feeling comfortable around you. So you affirm everyone and everything. If you're friends with this type of person, here's the reality. We tend to view them this way. They accept us for who we are, but they never really help us become who we should be. If you're this type of person, you tend to value what's pragmatic over what's faithful. Right, well, well, what works with people? What, 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 what's the thing about who God is and what he's done? I could, just, I could just go with what works rather than what's actually faithful to God's word. You become loose on truth and you just become flattering. You like to flatter people and eventually, instead of isolating, you just assimilate. You just become like the world. And ultimately, you don't love your neighbor. You're just seeking their approval for your own benefit. You see, the first type of person thinks that they're better because they're right. The second type of person thinks they're better because they're loving. Another way of framing this is the way in which Jesus came. Jesus came full of grace and truth. He came full of a passion for the truth of who God is, for the glory of God, and yet he came full of grace and love for sinners. You see, truth without grace is fundamentalism and it's judgmental. Grace without truth is just the foolish affirmation of all things, and it's just empty sentimentality. But truth makes grace radical. And grace makes truth hearable. They're meant to go together. So how can we orient our lives around God's glory and loving our neighbor if this is our bend? Well, that's why I'm grateful that verse 1 has been kind of shoved back up to be in its rightful place, most likely, where Paul says at the very end of this, be imitators of me in all of this as I am of Christ. How is it that we can be empowered to live life for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor? It is because Christ has first come and done that for us. Paul's not following some random example. He's not setting a new example. He says, imitate me as I imitate the very example and life of Christ himself. Jesus' salvific work modeled this so perfectly. He centralized the glory of God and he prioritized his neighbor. Namely, us. A couple of verses here. John chapter 12. Listen to what Jesus says. He prioritized the glory of God even when it costs him something. John chapter 12, now is my soul troubled 
And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Looking forward to going to Jerusalem to be arrested and crucified. But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. So what's his prayer? Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Or in Matthew 26, Jesus is a little bit further down the road here. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane about to be arrested. Going a little further, he fell on his face in Matthew 26 and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In the moments when Jesus' comfort stood in opposition to God's glory, he said, for this very purpose I have come. I can lay aside my comfort and prioritize the glory of God. We needed him to do that. If in that moment Jesus did not prioritize the glory of God, then we're all still dead in our sins. It's because he prioritized the glory of God that he went through the plan that was laid out before the foundation of the world. You realize that, that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sat together, sat. At this point, no one has a human body. They sat together and they said, let's create a plan. And in that plan involved not just creating you, but before they even decided to create you, they said, we're going to initiate a rescue plan. The rescue plan is going to involve Jesus, the son, going to earth, taking on human flesh and suffering. That's the plan that God came up with. That they joyfully agreed upon to say this plan will bring glory to the triune God, which is ultimately for our good because he's the only one that is good. And if we can see his glory, that's good for us. And so in these moments, Jesus prioritizes the plan, the glory of God, to say, I know it's painful, I know it's hard, but my priority is to glorify God by going to this cross and bearing the weight of sin for my sheep. And he does it so that we could be saved. He also prioritizes our benefit above his own. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, a letter written to this same church. Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In coming to earth to save us and to die on the cross, Paul puts it in financial terms. Jesus was rich and yet for your sake he became poor. So that in the loss of all of his riches, in his poverty, he might give it to you instead. He prioritized your blessing and your benefit above his own. To save you. Or Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The mission statement of the gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word even is really important. The Son of Man is this, this title that, that, that highlights Jesus' eternality, the fact that he's a, he's a king who's going to establish a kingdom that lasts forever. And he says, even 
the Son of Man, even the one who is eternal, even the one who is the King of Kings, even the one who has an everlasting kingdom that will never, never end, even that one came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for us. Romans 15. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The sins of those who sinned against you, God, fell on me. This is exactly why Jesus came to prioritize our salvation at the expense of himself. And in the process, it would glorify God. And friends, that is exactly what we are called to as his people. That's part of what it means for us to reflect his image to the world, that we would do the very same, not in our own strength, not in our own power, but precisely because he has done that for us, that through the Holy Spirit, we can centralize God's glory. We can. Before you came to know Christ, you could do nothing for God's glory. You couldn't do a single thing for God's glory. Literally not one thing. Everything was for your glory. Even the good things you did were for your glory. You're sickly motivated. But now, now that you've been given a new heart in Christ, if you come to Jesus and put your faith and your trust in him, the Bible says you've been given a new heart. His spirit lives in you and causes you to walk in his statutes and obey his commands. You can now glorify God. If the glory of God is central, it means we can glorify him in everything because it's connected to every little thing. You picture a hub with spokes. Jesus is in the middle. Because he's central, he can touch and connect every little thing. If his glory is central, it means I can glorify him in every single thing I do. Obviously, except the things that are sinful. I can glorify him in everything. John Piper captures this beautifully. I'm going to read a, a quote at length here. Describing what it looks like to glorify things, which helps us understand how to glorify God. He says, for example, if, if you want to glorify a beautiful painting, you don't feel a burden to work to improve it. You simply enjoy the painting. You love it. You talk about it excitedly with your friends. Or if somebody makes you a wonderful meal and serves it up before you, how do you glorify the excellence of the meal? Not by putting on your apron and adding a few spices. You glorify a perfect meal by eating a lot and feeling content and saying, ah. How about this? How do you glorify the strength of a new metal bridge? Not by working hard to provide some extra supports, but by getting in your car and trusting the bridge with your life as you peacefully drive across without any anxiety. Or suppose your duty was to glorify someone's generosity. You don't do it by trying to pay them back. That would treat their gift like a trade. No, the way to glorify their generosity and their kindness is to be lavish and genuine in your gratitude and thanksgiving. Finally, suppose it's your duty to glorify someone's great wisdom. You don't glorify their wisdom by trying strenuously to help them figure out the answer to some problem. You glorify their wisdom by doing what they say. In other words, 
If it is your duty to glorify something infinitely beautiful and wonderful, that is no burden. It is a pleasure. In fact, when you take from it pleasure, you show that it's a treasure. Let me read that last last part again. In other words, if it is your duty to glorify something that's infinitely beautiful and wonderful, that is no burden. It is a pleasure. In fact, when you take pleasure from glorifying that thing, you show that it's a treasure. Friends, that's exactly what we're called to do with our Lord Jesus. We are commanded to glorify him. It's literally our purpose as human beings is to glorify God. And as Christians, we are commanded to glorify God. But it is no burden. It is no simple duty. It is a pleasure. It is a joy and a privilege that we get to enjoy him. The way we would marvel at a painting and say, isn't it marvelous? Isn't it wonderful? Look at it. We get to just enjoy it. We get to trust him. In the way that we would marvel at the glory of a bridge by driving across it and saying, this is incredible. Look at how it holds us. Look at him. Look at how strong he is. Look at how mighty he is. Look at how much he cares for us. He holds us together. Though that we would thank him. We would thank him for his generosity. Not saying, God, I gotta pay you back. I gotta earn my way. I gotta add a little bit extra, but to just say, you're so generous. Thank you so much that you would become poor so I could become rich. We talk about him. We, like, like we would talk about a meal. You gotta, you gotta try this. It's so good. You gotta come and taste and see Jesus. He's, he's like nothing you've ever experienced before. Or that we would just sit and be satisfied in him. To say, I may not have X, Y, and Z, but I have Christ, the gift of all gifts. Or that we would obey him, knowing that he's all wise, all kind, that everything he commands us to and calls us to is not for our burden, it's not for our destruction, it's not to make us miserable, but what's the promise of Romans 8.28? That he works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Centralizing God's glory as a Christian is not a burden, it's a pleasure. And we're called to prioritize the good of others. Paul uses a phrase here. He says, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, which sounds to us like flattery. Aren't we supposed to not be people pleasers? Like, aren't we supposed to just live for the the pleasure of God alone? Uh, Well, he's not saying we just be people pleasers. He's not saying we just do flattery. He's saying, I want to be concerned genuinely about the good of everyone I encounter. I actually want to see people come to know Christ. I actually want their greatest good. So I prioritize that instead of giving offense to them which doesn't just mean hurting their feelings. That phrase literally means to block them from coming to know Christ. I want to make sure my life is not blocking people from coming to know Jesus. And so I can constantly seek their advantage. Why? Oh, because I have, I have a Savior who's constantly seeking my advantage. So I don't have to just look out for myself. I can suffer, I can sacrifice because Jesus is working out all things for my good so I can prioritize their good. 
that they may see Christ. You see, in our salvation, Jesus specifically planned how to reach us with the gospel. Or to make it more personal, in your salvation, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, God not only cosmically planned Jesus Christ to come save you from your sins by dying on a cross, but he also personally and individually planned the way in which that message would get to you so that you would believe. I think part of what we're being called to here in the scriptures this morning is to prioritize the goodness and glory of God by specifically looking at our neighbors that don't know Jesus and saying, how in the world can I get the gospel to them in a way that they can hear it so that they can come to know Jesus, but however means necessary. Actually figuring out how can I be intentional with this person to bring them the gospel, even if that comes at a suffering to myself. That's what we're called to do. There's a story in the news a few years ago in 2018 um, about a, a rescue that happened in a, in a cave, I believe, it was, I believe it was in Thailand. It was a group of, of, of boys from a soccer team and they went hiking after one of their games and a big storm happened and they all got trapped inside the cave. Maybe, maybe you remember this story. And it took them 10 days to find them because in order to reach them, it was like a mile and a half deep inside this cave with parts that were above water, parts that were underwater. It took like very professional cave diving scuba divers to actually get to them and find them. And after they found them, now they were faced with how in the world do we rescue them? And another storm was coming and they're exploring all the options possible. Maybe we teach them how to scuba dive. Maybe we drill a hole in the top of the mountain and, and lift them out. Maybe we just wait it out for the waters to recede. None of the options were possible. None of them were gonna work to save these kids. And so they came up with this plan of stringing this rope through this entire cave. And what they would do is when they got to each kid, they would sedate them. And they would lay them flat on this little board and two scuba divers would literally carry one by one. They would take them on this mat all the way through, swimming at portions, carrying them at other portions, one by one, having to administer more sedation halfway through to keep the kids calm and not freaking out and having a panic attack. All of those boys got saved. Two rescuers died, one in the process and one a year later from complications. There were over 10,000 people involved with rescuing this team. And every single one of those people, do you know what their priority was? Their priority was not themselves. It was not, how can we do this in a way that is safe for us? How can we do this in a way that ensures that we don't get harmed in the process? No, the number one priority in the entire thing, the driving goal is we will lay aside our freedoms and our rights to prioritize these kids being saved. Is that not a wonderful picture? Not only what Christ has done for us, but how we are called to prioritize the good of our unbelieving neighbor. To say, whatever it takes. Do I need to suffer? Do I need to lay down my rights? Do I need to be really uncomfortable? What can I do to reach them with the gospel? Yes, pray that they come to know Christ. But how is the Lord also calling me to move my hands and my feet and open my mouth to do so? Church, this is what Christ has called us to do. We can't save others, but we can intentionally seek their rescue. And because Jesus is central in our lives, 
there's no more appropriate endeavor for us than to glorify God and prioritize our neighbor's salvation. Let's pray together.